Welcome to the Diabetes Canada Healthcare Huddle, a podcast that invites healthcare professionals to listen in on the discussion as we explore a diabetes-related topic. Each episode, we will present a case study, then have a conversation with an expert about the clinical challenge. Finally, we will revisit the case and see how we can apply our new knowledge and tools. My name is Dr. Sarah Stafford. I'm an endocrinologist in Surrey, BC, and I'm joined by my colleague, Gail McNeil, who's a diabetes educator and clinical nurse specialist from Toronto. So today we have a really wonderful discussion, keeping us very up to date on diabetes in Canada with the updated mental health chapter in discussion today. And we have with us the lead author on that chapter, Dr. Dave Robinson. Uh, Dr. Dave Robinson has worked as a general adult psychiatrist for 30 years in the London, Ontario area, a self-confessed slow learner. He worked in general hospitals for 22 years before finally figuring out what a statutory holiday was. He has been the lead author for the mental health chapter in the Diabetes Canada Clinical Practice Guidelines for the past 10 years, and you may know him from the books he's written for Rapid Cycler Press. His hobbies include driving rally cars and photography, and he regularly deflects shots into his own net during recreational hockey games. Dave, welcome to the podcast today. Uh, it, it's a privilege to be here. Thanks for the invite, and that's an excellent introduction. You've, you've summarized me very well in, in, in the paragraph that you read. Good job. Wonderful. I, I feel like there's a lot more story to learn there. So I look forward to that. Um, we have Gail here with us as well. And Gail, I think this is a really great topic because there's obviously a huge connection between mental health and physical health and diabetes care. And is this something that you encounter commonly in clinic? All the time, Sarah, and thank you, Dr. Robinson, for joining us. This is a really important topic, I think, when we're in the clinical setting, and sometimes we don't know how to approach people and we don't have the information. So I'm really excited to hear the new knowledge that's coming out in the chapters and talking about how diabetes and mental health are such an important day at the interplay there. And understand also how to engage our people really understanding. We do all the simple things like this. You know, we do all the testing and the paid scales and stuff. But what do we do after that? How do we actually engage a person um, in dealing with their, their mental health issues? So thank you for joining us today. Uh, you're very welcome. Absolutely a privilege to be here. So I think what we'll do is dive right in. And Dave, why don't you just give us an overview of the major changes to the updated mental health chapter? Yeah, happy to. So uh, as you mentioned, this is my three-peat as the lead author, and things have changed considerably over the, the 10 years. When we first got the nod that the chapter was to be updated, we thought it was going to be a revision, but it ended up being a complete rewrite. And uh, it, it's a lengthy chapter. There's there's a lot that, that's happened in the five years since it came out. We got the largest group of contributors yet. There were seven of us that, that contributed. And previously, we've really only had three or four people. Um, so it was exciting to get the, the, the blend of, of talent. And uh, we really um, think that the, the final product uh, is significantly better for it. This was actually updated at the five-year mark. That was just more... Uh, by an, an accident. It, it uh, had been a five-year update up until this point, but enough had happened that it was a, a worthy uh, time frame to, to look at. And we added several new topics to the chapter this time around. So the way the chapter is structured, it starts out with common or predictable reactions to the diagnosis of diabetes. And these are things like uh, diabetes distress, fear of hy hypoglycemia, 
Um, what I refer to as insulin refusal that I think people may know more as uh, psychological insulin resistance. I don't think that's a particularly good term. So I've been trying to squeeze it out and just have, I think, the more accurate description of insulin refusal. So it's structured that way that, that people often will have the same reaction uh, to loss or stress that they will uh, go through the anger, bargaining, denial, rationalization, et cetera. And then that becomes um, sometimes a little bit more serious that as we've learned the, the, the greatest toll to people's functioning is actually a condition called diabetes to stress. And I think that Gail made reference to that with the PAID scale, that's the problem area in diabetes scale. That is one of the, the ways of, of getting a measure of people's sense of distress with their diabetes. Then uh, things can get more serious and we put that a little bit further into the chapter where they can end up with diagnosable psychiatric conditions, things like major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, sleep and eating disorders are, are common, uh, but th those are obviously more serious consequences. The other thing that we did in terms of structuring this chapter was to really take a look at the lifespan from contemplated pregnancy up until older age, and it's done in, in that, uh, uh, that, that lifestyle sort of lifespan way as well. So there are actually uh, 17 sections in the, the chapter generally referring to diagnosis, treatment, and screening. The new sections would be uh, the inclusion of a framework to really understand the interplay between diabetes and mental health. There's an excellent section on stigma, a new section on the financial burden of uh, managing diabetes, and a section on COVID-19 and that interplay. And then the, uh, the expanded sections were really looking at considerations in pregnancy, childhood, and adolescence. Uh, one of the psychologists did an outstanding job of really uh, expanding that, that area and a real call to action to try to get people help as early as possible in life to, uh, to try to uh, get them stable and, uh, and avoid some of the problems that they'll have once they become very set in their routine uh, to try to get that change in your 30s and 40s is a much bigger challenge. Uh, we, we found there was an expanded range of psychiatric conditions that can lead one to have diabetes, and, and that encompasses now most of the DSM-5. We uh, significantly revised the section on pharmacological treatments, especially with the advent of the newer antipsychotic medications, the, the, the third generation or dopamine partial agonists really provide a, a safer metabolic profile. And then we, we uh, revised the metabolic monitoring uh, part as well that there's a difference between screening for diabetes for people that are at risk and, and uh, what you do to keep track of people that have established diabetes. We wanted to, to draw uh, some attention to the difference in, in screening under those circumstances. So those were the, the major changes that uh, are incorporated in the 2023 guidelines. Thanks, Dave. You know, that's an incredibly comprehensive list and really addresses some of the key challenges we face every day. I know these questions around financial burden and um, all of these newer agents, this comes up every day in clinic. So I think this will be very helpful for all of us. Um, maybe can you give us an outline of the interplay between diabetes and mental health? Yeah, it's an excellent um, question. And I, I think the initial point that I'll make is that we don't treat diabetes we treat people with diabetes, and we always have to factor that human element in there, that humans were going to respond to stress and bad news in, in um, 
in uh, fairly predictable but very different ways. And we always have to try to keep that human element in there. And I think um, if, if you engage in activities that put you at some risk like uh, paragliding or scuba diving, you can cut out those activities and, and try to reduce the risk to living a long, healthy life. But when the thing that is potentially going to be your undoing is food, that, that has a whole other uh, significance to people and, and often involves a significant lifestyle change that sometimes people are just reluctant to make. They, they can't do it or they won't do it or it comes at too high of a cost for them. So I'll say that the, the interplay between uh, mental health um, struggles and diabetes has been appreciated for centuries, that there was uh, a, a notable English physician named Thomas Willis. And uh, those of you that studied any neuroanatomy will recognize the, the circle of Willis, which is this arterial structure at the base of the brain. He did a number of remarkable things, but he left this quote saying that, that diabetes is far more common in the melancholy which is an antiquated term for depression. So again, it starts out as this reaction to bad news, the Kubler-Ross stages, the shock, anger, bargaining, denial, rationalization, et cetera. That, that's, those are all predictable responses in, in a different sequence with different people. I think that the greatest and well-established risk is between major depressive disorder and type two diabetes that having one puts you at a significant risk of developing the other. And there really is this time-honored uh, interplay or bi-directional risk between the two of them. There are 17 major chapters in the DSM-5, which is the, the, the cookbook or the Bible, if you will, that psychiatrists use just so that we have a standardized description of, of the, the diagnoses that we make. And there is a, a significant majority of those chapters now that show that if you have this psychiatric condition, it puts you at risk, generally doubling or possibly even tripling the, the general population risk of developing type 2 diabetes in particular. The chapters that don't seem to have that risk are, are not very uh, common in terms of epidemiological studies, uh, such as uh, elimination disorders. I don't think there's been a lot of research looking at the risk of diabetes in people with elimination disorders, just because the numbers are so low. Um, so the, the other side of this is that uh, having diabetes puts people at risk for developing quite an array of psychiatric conditions, such as depression. People get quite anxious. They can develop obsessive compulsive like behaviors with all the checking and screening and counting and tabulating that has to go on with calories and activity level. Uh, a lot of people, particularly when they start insulin, are fearful of having hypoglycemic episodes while they're sleeping or while they're driving, and, and that makes a significant impact on their, their peace of mind. Uh, people will alter their feeding and eating uh, behaviors. There's often concerns about sleep. Sexual dysfunction often goes along with uh, diabetes as well. So that there was a, about 10 of those 17 chapters that people were at risk for as a psychological reaction to, uh, to having the diabetes. And then of course, there's the risk of uh, cognitive dysfunction or neurocognitive decline, having had um, irregularities in glycemic control over decades that we do see that cognitive decline as well. So quite a, a huge interplay. If you have almost any psychiatric condition, you're at risk for especially type two diabetes. 
And if you have diabetes, there's, there's a growing range of conditions that people are at risk for in terms of psychiatric conditions as well. Yeah, that uh, bi-directional connection is just astounding. We see this every day in clinic when we see our people with diabetes who have mental health conditions. And then when we're on call and we see people with mental health conditions who are newly diagnosed with diabetes or struggling with their diabetes control. So absolutely important to kind of appreciate both sides of that connection. Um, what about when we have people with diabetes who are really struggling with achieving glycemic control? Are there kind of mental health barriers that we need to consider or, or aspects we need to focus on to help them? Yeah, it's an excellent point. And I, I would say uh, that I want to preface my comments. I, I'm not a primary care provider, nor am I an endocrinologist. So I get to see people in a different context, but I, I do have uh, some thoughts to share on that that um, th there's a famous quote that uh, I, I believe is attributed to Hippocrates. Now, every physician, of course, takes the uh, Hippocratic Oath. It's not that one. But the quote is more, maybe it's more important to know what sort of person has the illness rather than what sort of illness a person has. And, and we really, again, in, in mental health, like to focus on that human element and get to know the person. And um, diabetes, as I said, it haunts people. You can't really eat anything without having this calculation spin off in your head. And uh, have I accounted for this? Is it safe? Is it the right thing to do? You're second guessing everything. And I think that that does get the better uh, of people. And people will respond differently to different strategies, et cetera. But I think that um, one of the traps that we fall into in clinicians is if people are not doing so well with their diabetes care, we think that we haven't done something on our end to uh, bombard them with information or scold them or nag them or push them or whatever we think motivates them. We personally see that as a failing uh, on, on what we've provided. If their A1C comes back at 7.1, for example, that, that's not ideal, but uh, it, it's not necessarily a comment of the job that, that we've done, and we shouldn't take that as a report card. So the approach that I take is a, a more of a softer one. I, I see people after they've had their diabetes education and frequently have had uh, an endocrinology appointment or some appointment with their, their family physician, and, and they're still struggling with something. They're, they're feeling really bad that they weren't at target. And they'll say, look, I, I just, they don't know all the things I'm doing. I'm walking, I'm counting calories, I'm doing these things. This is a really hard transition for me. So what I try to provide instead is uh, a bit of a refuge or a safe harbor and say, look, I, I get it. I, it's, it's a huge lifestyle change. Not everybody can pull this off, especially as quickly as, as some healthcare providers would like. And I ask the question, what do you really want for yourself? That, that uh, is it important to get this um, uh, A1C down or are there lifestyle compromises that you're gonna have to make that are unacceptable to you? And I would say that I use a combination of uh, shared decision-making and motivational interviewing. And those are really easy things to pick up that I think some people have a natural talent for them. And you can learn those approaches in a couple of hours. This is not something that you need a huge training program for. They're fairly well described and, and the, the outline is, is pretty accessible. And this is just more of a way of interacting with people. But my job, I don't think is to add to the education and, and really 
uh, make people feel bad for the efforts that they're making. It's more sympathetic and say, I get it, you're doing your best, but maybe your life at a lower A1C level just isn't, isn't that appealing for you. Some of the other things that, that I think sharing tips and tricks that have worked for other people. I'll give you an example. There's one family physician uh, who just encourages people to put their shoes on and walk out to the sidewalk as their exercise. And, and people will get out there and say, well, this is absurd. <laughs> I'm not going to get 30 seconds of exercise. I'm going to go for five or 10 minutes. But it was a way of at least getting them that far. And just to say incremental steps, if you can exercise for 12 minutes, that's better than 10. 15 is better than 12. If you can cut 50 or 100 calories a day out of what you eat, that's progress. And just to look for those incremental steps and try and encourage them and, and, and recognize that what they're doing. And I think that there's enough people around them, family, friends, healthcare professionals who are well-intentioned, but I call that the chorus of correct living, that they get scolding and education and reminders all the time. I try to make my time with people a bit of a safe harbor, a bit of a refuge, and say, look, you know, ultimately, we have to respect the choices that you want to make and, and uh, respect the values that you have. And if, if this is just too much for you, we get it. And, and we just want to support you the best way that we can. Makes sense. So use this common theme we come back to often, Gail, of meeting the person where they're at. Right. I think we've heard that so many times in previous discussions. Gail, having had this uh, conversation with Dave, what kind of uh, thoughts do you have as you go back to clinic again? I think it's fabulous that you've gone through the stages of life because so many of our programs now we're looking of course the diabetes across the lifespan so you've included the children and that's an area that's often been neglected and of course the adolescent has been neglected dramatically and pregnancy i worked heavily in pregnancy and there's so much going on there right and it starts right there and can continue so as you said david started at the beginning where, where it's at um, I also like the idea that of the talking about the neural uh, cognitive decline, for instance, in the older person and putting that together, that's always a challenge for, for the clinicians understanding what is actually normal, what's abnormal and that kind of thing. And you said some really interesting, uh, I really like the fact about the engagement and the idea that we have to screen differently. I haven't really heard that one before, but it's logical. You screen differently for somebody who's new to diabetes versus someone who has been dealing with it for a while. So we should be thinking about that. You said very clearly different approaches as we know. And you came back to always, as Sarah, as you're saying, the person with diabetes, what is your goal? What are you trying to achieve? It's not our goal, you know, and it's what is, what are you trying to achieve? So I really think that the, we come back to the listening and the understanding. And I noticed too, in the chapter, you, my, one of my favorite uh, theories, if you want to put it, that is the health belief model that you've actually stressed a lot, understanding how the person views their health and that will make a huge difference. And we should start there and work through with them. So thank you for the updates. I think it's great. And I think you've given us some tips to work with. So. Well, yeah, you're very welcome. I think that that I'll, I'll uh, end this with, uh, again, another um, quote from Hippocrates who said, cure sometimes, treat often, but comfort always. And I think that that would sum up the, the, the approach that, that I found to be helpful is to just as you say, meet them where they're at, validate what they're doing, and, and hope for um, something other than an information uh, dump on, on their head to remind them what their risks are. That doesn't really work that well for people. And, and I, I think taking that softer approach 
is, uh, is going to pay some dividends. For those of you who are interested in learning more about this topic, we also have a webinar that Dave will be hosting, available on the Diabetes Canada website. Please help us improve our future podcasts by filling out the survey in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today. If you have questions about the episode or about becoming a member of the Diabetes Canada professional section, please email professional.membership at diabetes.ca. Special thanks to Adam Humphreys for providing the music for today's podcast.